Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome to the Psychovertical Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Kirkpatrick. Another Friday, um, another another afternoon of trying to work out what to talk about. I was supposed to be talking to um, uh, Pete Whitaker, uh, but he could only do it like eight o'clock in the morning, so it was too too early. Eight o'clock. Like I've been, I've been up. I love being up early, but it's just my brain won't work that well that early in the morning. So I've I did a I did a. Uh, a post this week on my Substack. Uh, like, if, if you don't know what Substack is, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like I should I probably just put it on my website, but um, it's basically, uh, it's a bit like a website, bit like a, bit like a like a email kind of service thing, and you basically every all the all the trendy people are on Substack, so you know, so you you basically put it on Substack. And people can support. It's a much easier way. People like supporting, like uh, what you do and stuff, and rather than having it on your website and stuff. So, um, anyways, I've got this Substack. It's Andy Kirkpatrick dot com, and I've been like, I, mean, I I generally try and do something every week because I have like people like paying like supporters. You pay like five dollars a five euros a month or fifty euros a year or something. So it's very highly highly appreciated. People who who kind of support that kind of thing, um. So I always, I always feel like I need to, I need to like get on it every every week. Um, the, like this week, I'm, I'm trying to put together my show for for like a start next week. Is it next week? Next weekend in Sheffield and Buxton and to travel around for like a month in the UK. Um, hopefully, hopefully the UK stays open. Um. So I'm like trying to, I'm trying to do that at the moment. So it's a, it's always, it's always a bit of a nightmare. Um, like a lot of comedians, when they go, when they're doing like tours, they would generally uh, work on the material over like a long period, and they would, 
you know, do like small venues. Like I've been to th- been to theatres where they'd have, you know, someone who was doing stuff at like Wembley Stadium, but they would go and do like a week in this like tiny little theatre, and I don't know if people paid, but people would come and then they would like work through the material. So I don't really, I don't really have that kind of thing. So generally, is it's interesting in the past? Generally, when you're on tour, you you had already told all these stories so many times uh that you basically had like a good idea about like how to how to structure it all together and things but i think on this this tour's a bit it's a bit different because i don't you don't seem to i don't seem to meet so many people and like retell stories so as i was as i was going through the 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 structure of the of the show the show's called um mind your head that's one of, that's one of these things that someone asks you what's it what's it called like two years ago, and you're like, uh, "Mind your head," and then and then they kind of stuck holidays from hell. Doesn't they don't really go together the two things, but um, yes, yeah, so you're trying to like structure the whole thing together. And the the idea, the idea originally was for it to be like non non linear, but cover like about three years, uh, and going be- back between loads of adventures and things. And you would have, you know, like a bit about higher cars, a bit about dealing with like wild animals you know all that all that kind of stuff crime and punishment all that kind of stuff a bit about climbing and uh, i've decided i decided i'm going to start it uh, like all like every story needs a you know a start a beginning and an end but it'd have to be in that order so this this kind of starts near the end um where i'm sort of being marched through the airport in in q8 being deported and uh so it's got this kind of like like oh what's happening kind of thing <laughs> maybe um like midnight express you know got all that kind of stuff good channels and midnight express kind of stuff and my wife's disappeared somewhere and you know everyone's everyone's freaking out and going crazy and you know it's like mad madness or whatever and then i'll go and then i go into like vanessa's deciding to have like two years off from work have a like a career break and going off to going off traveling and all that kind of stuff so like one thing I'm worried about is is I hope people don't I hope like if someone's talking about the holidays people are like oh a wanker it's like talking about holidays like I I mean only for like two years or something so hopefully that won't be the case so so yeah so so yeah so I'm going just going through that at the moment but it's kind of hard it's kind of it's kind of hard. It's kind of stressful. It stresses. It's been stressing me out for like a long time because you're you're always thinking like, oh god, I've got nothing to talk about. Like, oh Christ. Like, I remember like I remember when I came back from Greenland. I was like, there was I have zero to talk about about that trip. Like nothing happened. And then like now I have like so many so many stories like from that trip. Like loads of things which are little things. Like I in Greenland I said that people. That the women should maybe go on the pill because and then they won't have a period. And then if you're on the ice for like a month, it might be a bit better. Like, I don't know where I got this idea from. I don't know anything about stuff and stuff like that. So they did that. But then they both started getting the period anyway, so they didn't have any tampons or whatever. So um yeah, that's a fun, that's a funny story. And uh, like in the middle of Greenland we saw these like we, we somehow managed to bump into some people coming the opposite direction across Greenland and we're skiing towards them and it turns out it was these like these like four women coming and you know the first thing was like do you have any tampons and all that kind of stuff so yeah so it's kind of in it's kind of interesting how you 
how you do uh like i've like i've got loads of stories in this in this show i've got a story about being attacked by an elephant i've got a story about being attacked by a, a baboon um or i have to sort of try and defend myself and um you know a gun fa- a gun battle going on uh like loads of stuff but i guess it's i guess there's like it's kind of uh I don't know. It's like, it's kind of it's kind of uh, funny, really. It's a funny. Like most, like uh, one one. I had this real um, like important moment where I was like, "It's not meant to be funny." Like I'm 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 stressing out because I'm like, "It's not funny. It's not funny." I'm like, then I was like, "What the? What are you talking about? It's not meant to be funny. It's not. You're not meant to be a comedian. You're just meant to be like telling, telling some stories about you know, going around places." So. So yeah, so that was a that was a good that was a good thing to to focus on. Is uh like a lot of these a lot of slideshows are shit basically, aren't they? Like if you go to them, like basically shit, and you know, or they're just not quite as shit as the other ones you've been to. So as long as it's like not quite as shit as the as the ones that aren't as shit as the other ones, then you know, then it's like if it's like two shits removed from a shit one, then then it might it might you know it'd be okay. So. Um, I should I shouldn't really I never really I never used to think about it before. I think I used to like often I would just turn up and I would have like put the slideshow together the day before and there'd be like you know five hundred people in like a theatre and then you would just start doing it. But then I would end up having same stupid stuff that was getting into trouble. So that maybe maybe uh, I have to be you have to be I think you have to be so much more so much more careful these days about um saying the wrong thing and upsetting somebody so that's a bit of a that's a bit of a pain i could i could see this being like the last time i do this because i just feel like the what the world you know isn't really it doesn't really uh i mean that's not maybe that's not fair because like a lot of people you know like when i was i was last time i went on tour there was a guy who was going around and he had a he had a puppet of sad um a puppet of um bin laden like a suicide bomber he was going around and he was like selling, you know, selling out of like the same kind of venues. So there is a, there is an appetite and you do, you do kind of forget like when you're touring around, you know, like Roy Chubby Brown would have been there the week before or Jethro or these people who just have no, no presence on the television. Um, they li- they live in this kind of separate ecosystem of like theatres and traveling around and stuff. So but I guess they're, they're kind of on borrowed time because all the all the people are dying. Who used to like their like their kind of humour. So it's um yeah you need to you need to you always need to be constantly evolving. I think uh, like I know somebody was he spent his whole life just just being a programmer for like an operating system or or what programming soft language that's you know like thirty years old or something. Like he was. He was almost like someone who made like Victorian window frames or something, you know, like he was like one of the, you know, there weren't that many people who could do it. And it was great. And until like, until he got the, until he got the, you know, until they stopped using it anymore and he didn't know how to do anything else. So it's a, yeah, it's kind of important to keep, um, keep an eye on, on like where things are going. Um, like it could be, with because of the C word, like everything, you know that whole industry could be like wiped out of like comedians and shows and stuff. And I know, I know, I know. Kenton Cool has just done a tour, um, and I'm do, I'm doing a tour with the same the same people. 
And I think I get the impression it was like tough, tough going because, you know, Kenton would usually like sell out venues and stuff. And I think, um, you know, I think in some places it's it's hard to get people to to want to go out again. Like I've not been to the cinema or anything myself. So, um, yeah, but there's nothing on. That's why. So maybe maybe June or maybe that. I don't know. Every every time you every time you think a film's going to be good, you 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 can't really trust. Uh, like anything, any, any, you can't really trust anyone to, t- to if it's any good anymore. So, you know, maybe that don't don't really bother. So, cause um, I can't get Pete on. Um, I thought what I might do, I might actually read through this latest post on Substack, and as I read through it, um, maybe I'll like t- I'll like talk about some of the things in it. Um, it's like a, a basically, it's based on a, someone asked me a question. And uh, about melting snow, snow, smelting snow, melting snow, that white stuff that's frozen, comes out of the sky. And uh, and I give this like long answer, but it was like a lot of things. As I started writing it, that's the problem with the internet is that you, you of like writing that digitally is that you haven't you haven't got you're not restricted. So sometimes you just end up writing way too much, and I probably could condense it down into about about a paragraph like what I wrote it was probably about 3000 words but I could probably just condense it down really um but anyway you might find it interesting as I'm reading through it then I maybe I'll have some like some uh, some thoughts on this and uh, so anyway but it didn't usually you can see how many people read uh, open the thing so you basically post it on Substack and then it get it gets sent to everybody uh, email to everybody and you can see how many people open it and usually I get quite a good ratio of people opening things but this one had a lower ratio and I think it's because it's got the word Nazi in it it's like snow melting Nazi so I think people may be a bit sick of Nazis so um and how can be sick of Nazis anyway so the or Nazis as some people call them um so maybe that was a mistake I should have called it something else so snow melting pedophiles or something um so yeah so I'll I'll, I'll just so the bit so this is the question anyway Good evening, Mr. Kirkpatrick. That's quite very good evening. That's a very uh, interesting. He must be a fo- foreign person because it's like, you know, salutations. We have found money in our vault. Can we send it to you, Mrs. Kirkpatrick? Um, I have a question regarding the optimal size, in brackets, volume of a cooking pot for melting snow on a multi-day alpine climb, which includes bivvies in a tent or in the open. I always thought the volume... The more volume the pot has, the less time the fuel, the the less time and fuel you have to use to melt enough snow for drinking and cooking instant food. I also thought that this would outweigh the weighty penalty of the bigger pot because the more often you have, the more often you have to melt pots full of snow, the less time you have to rest or sleep. Or is melting snow in smaller pots much faster? I'm a bit surprised because I have seen that many three-man rope teams in high up mountains only carry an MSR reactor with a 1.7 litre pot, like Tom Livingston and his partners during the Latok Ascent. By the way, I love your book, blah, blah, blah. Best regards, Vincent. So this is this is kind of my reply. So Hi, Vincent. Thanks for your question. Rather than give you a tight and formalised answer, here is a bit of a brain splurge on stoves. So the first section is called Pasta Nazis. So this is where the Nazis come from. Snow melting is a subject a little like cooking pasta. Some people just throw the pasta 
into some cold water in a pan, crank up the heat and cook it until it looks cooked. While others, they will add the pasta to salted boiling water along with some olive oil, then remove it while it's al dente, add some more salt to season, a tablespoon of olive oil, then serve. So you can tell, obviously you can tell that I'm a Patsanazzi because that is one of the things that is... I once was in Yosemite and Vanessa like cooked some pasta and basically she like put the pasta in this, the cold water and so the it was spaghetti, so the spaghetti was sticking out of the water and then she, which is like, that's a travesty to begin with, it should be boiling water, but then she somehow managed to have the top half of the pasta not cooked and then the bottom half of the pasta, which was pressing on the bottom of the bottom half of the pan, uh, somehow got burnt or something. It was all stuck together. It was like it was, yeah, amazing. I think maybe maybe my my Patsanazism comes from going on expeditions and things where sometimes you have a very limited amount of food and often you have to carry that food in. So if you've carried in like a couple of kilos of food, if someone if someone burns it or you know doesn't get the most out of it, it's not good. So. Uh, you have to be a bit of a, a bit of a bit obsessive about, you know, like cooking rice and cooking pasta and cooking lentils and, um, like it's horrible if you get like a freeze dried meal and someone's put the water in but they've not, uh, eh, they put the water in the water wasn't hot enough. That's not good. It's not good if they don't put enough water in or if they put too much water in, or if they've put the water in but they haven't um, stirred it around properly. So you're eating your your spaghetti bolognese, dehydrated spaghetti bolognese, and suddenly you get like a big mouthful of like like dried cup of soup or something. It's like, yeah, it's pretty grim. That's why it's a good idea to always have like those long-handled titanium spoons, you know, because you can get right down into the into the corners. Um, blah, blah, blah. Um, well, at the end of the day, both the imperfect and perfect methods give you a plate of pasta. Only one is perfect, the other less so. Only a pasta Nazi can tell. So it is with snow melting. You can be a snow melting Nazi and treat it like pasta, or does it really matter? Slack Harry. Both work and will produce water, but when the chips are down or the pasta, say you're on a thimble full of fuel left, or need a brew, brew up, or need to brew up that life saving cup of tea below the summit of Everest, and being a Nazi might help. So I hope that's not offensive to any. Any other any real Nazis out there? Um, it's very rare to come across. I've never actually met a Nazi in my life, and uh, it must be out must be out there. I never. I did actually when I was growing up, and there was people who were into being Nazis. <laughs> you know, who would like be into. I guess it was punk. It was a time of punk, so that was kind of a a, a fashion thing. There was a you know there was that kind of punky thing. I think I was just about. Uh, counterculture, isn't it? Like uh, pushing against like the status quo. Like your your parents and your grandparents fought the Nazis. So if you're a punk, then dressing up like a Nazi is uh, you know that's the way to get them. It's a bit like the is it the generation is Generation Z? What would that be? Like my daughter's a genera a gen. Would she be a gen a millennial? She was born like ninety eight, and my son's born two thousand one. Are they Gen Z? Anyway, whatever they are. But I think that generation is going to be like super conservative, super save all their money. They'll all be religious and all that kind of stuff. It's be quite interesting to to rebel against people who thought they were kind of rebelling. 
Um, there was a guy, there was this guy, um, Barry Nuttall, and he was like, where there was, a, there was like a like a lot of housing estates where where I grew up, like old fashioned terrace housing, and then they knocked it all down because they uh, they thought it was like slum housing because a lot of the houses had like outside toilets and stuff, and then they just kind of replaced them with the actual slum housing, which was uh, you know kind of broke up you know broke up communities and moved them all over the place, and you know a lot of people knew each other on these like terrace streets, and they just like you know just just atomize them all and um so yeah it's kind of this but there was this guy barry nuttall and he was a uh, he was really into collecting army stuff he must have been like in his 30s or something he was like kind of he's like a grown-up an adult and he had like a street there was a street and he had loads of like he had a big like american army truck and and all this kind of stuff and what they did he would he refused to leave his house so he ended up having this like siege and they ended up like knocking down all the houses around him like a whole housing estate you know well not an estate but a whole like all these terrace houses and they knocked them all down until it was like just his house was left behind and there's a few like derelict like you know half destroyed buildings and we used to like go in there and like play around in the in the buildings and stuff and uh and then eventually they, act- they actually somehow whether the police got them out but they actually knocked down his house but instead of just giving in, he ended up like got a big tent and he like put his tent up inside where his house had been, like in all these bricks and stuff. And they built like a, it was like a prop. It was like something like a mash or something. Anyway, so him and all these uh, other people who were into the army or something, they all kind of camped out there for quite a long time. If you t- if you type in like Barry Nuthall, uh, Hull, you'll find. Some stories about him because he was uh I think he died he died he died like a few years ago I think but he was a uh, I don't know that those those things must like make an impression on you when you're a kid is that like this person is basically getting fucked over by the council and they knocked down his house and he didn't want to go and and uh, yeah it's kind of it's kind of um must must have an effect on you but anyway but he wasn't a Nazi like he was he was really into like American American stuff so. Anyway, the American stuff is it's much more cooler than being a Nazi, isn't it? We don't want to be a Nazi. So anyway, so back to the thing. So key points. The key points of snow melting is both the volume of snow to be converted back into water um, per unit of fuel, in brackets, fuel efficiency, and speed of production, in brackets, time efficiency. For example, if you're sitting on a 100-gallon fuel drum at a base camp, you can just read to the end of your Dan Brown chapter as the water boils away, as neither fuel nor time efficiency is important. And stressing over a 60 second boil time difference or 5 milligrams of white gas versus 5 kilograms of kerosene is just another form of wastage. But if you're perched on a ledge in your sleeping bag on a winter, in a winter storm with just an egg cup of gas left in the canister, and every second spent cooking exposes you to cold, the cold of the night. Then your life might depend on a second, on on seconds or milligrams of fuel. Somewhere between the two will be a three-person team at high camp resting before they go. They get going to the summit with rationed fu- food and fuel, but who have to, who have to maximally hydrate. Added into this, these efficiencies are size and bulk and weight. Important if you only have a 30-litre pack, but less so with a pulk or a jeep, 
plus safety concerns about the process, blah blah blah. So I guess a bit, I guess um, I guess I'm saying there that it, like very very often you get you like when you're sitting at home, say you're going to go and climb Denali or you're going to climb Aconcagua or something like that. And you're like, you're Googling, like, how much fuel do I need? And people, like Americans, you know, they're like, oh, you need like a hand's worth or something, or like a, a sock, a sock of fuel. Or, uh, you know, they always they always have these stupid, like a cup or, or three quarts or whatever. It's like, what the hell are you talking about? So, um, anyway, so it's, so they get, so you, so, you know, you're really stressing over this, this amount of fuel. Um, but unless you're, unless you complete, completely fuck it up, generally, you'll always have too much fuel. Um, you know, if you go in, generally what people tell you is like the recommended amount is always generally more than you need. It's only if you're really trying to, to like shave it to the bone, you know, if you're trying to get like a, a canister of gas to last you like a whole week or something, then you're going to have to be like super, super on it, whatever to, or, or you know, you, you've, you you know, you've only got hardly any fuel left in you. In your fuel bottle or something, it's like that. It's a bit like driving around in a car. Like, how many times have you ever run out of petrol in a car? Like, you know, like fifty times. <laughs> like, I think I've only I've run out of petrol twice in my whole life. You know, and it's and it's kind of the same with the stove. But it is a, it is not it's never very good when you like the stove's like it just like goes off. It's like it's that's not very good. So it and it depends like what you're what what you're doing or whatever. So I would I would say. Like most of the time, um, I wouldn't. It's it's not. It's something that's. It's one of the things you stress about, but but aren't really that important in the when you get there. Because often you, if you're going to be away for a long time, you will generally have like so much fuel, the give or take, you know, ten milligrams, twenty milligrams difference every day. Uh, you kind of you'll make it up anyway, so you'll always end up having some more. I know, like when we kept, when we were on. We went to Denali when we, when we were like stuck, at the end, we were like stuck for like a week or something. At the end, uh, you were just like we just kind of ran the stove like all day long, like in the tent to to stay warm, to be a bit warmer in the tent, and we still had fuel left at the end of it. So it's that's generally the generally the case. Very rare that you just you run out. <clears throat> so the next section is the BTU trap. Um, very often people get sucked into the beat into the BTU trap and BTU is British thermal unit so BTU is like how much heat your stove got give, gives out wherein they simply judge your stove by just its BTU score as in an MSR reactor in brackets 9000 BTU must be better than a jet boil uh, a jet boil zip for 4500 4, BTU or that both are trumped by an MSR whisper light 9500 BTU you will you will find hundreds of YouTube videos sorry <coughs> of people in their kitchens doing tests in which they boil a liter of water with X stove in order to prove it boils faster than Y this is a mistake just as a Ford Mustang might appear to be better than a Ford Mondeo when your aim is when your aim is getting from A to B five days a week for the life of your car, why pick a car that increases your risk of dying fourfold, even if you get there a few minutes faster? Yes, it's easier to produce a very fast car, but for what you gain in speed, you might lose far more. And in brackets, in the case of a Mustang, that might be your life. I once, I once uh, was guiding somebody, and he uh, 
he had he had lots of he had loads and loads of money, and he hired a Mustang, and um, he uh, it was it sounded like it was like just sounded like terror terrifying car like just would just spin out and it was just so badly balanced or whatever it was uh like it was like a a murder where you know <laughs> it's about it die he actually nearly did die because he drove up to Yosemite and he uh he drove around the loop road in Yosemite the wrong way around <laughs> so he's driving up the road the wrong way around in wrong direction and suddenly like a police car came around or the ranger came was coming the opposite way and the ranger ended up like driving off the road into a tree and uh and luckily he luckily he took it quite well so it was so yeah so yeah must mustangs you know a stang as i like to call it you know i'm just gonna get my stang yeah just avoid them um put it another way a falcon space rocket produces uh what's that 109 million btus it's, it's more than that it's like one zero nine Nine four one three hundred thousand. So it's like hundred nine, hundred nine million, nine hundred forty one. Anyway, fucking loads. But it can't do it for long. Plus, it's crap at making a cup of tea. The humble Trangia, on the other hand, uh, pumping out pedestrian three thousand five hundred BTU will do pretty much. Will do so pretty much forever as long as you keep adding spirits every hour. Is it a half hour? Half an hour. Um, God, this this might be like a really boring podcast because it's just me. It's like BTUs, BT, BTUs. Um, anyway, and so it's best to see BTUs like you do the top speed of a car and work out if your thing is Formula One or driving from London to Cape Town. Generally, it's the latter. So I guess that's a good. That's a good. Um, that's a good thing. It's good, it's good to apply that kind of thinking to a lot of things, because people will often get really, really obsessed about, oh, this one, this carabiner breaks at eight kilonewtons, but this one breaks at, you know, whatever. And uh, but generally, people get so focused on these narrow kind of measurements of of strength or whatever, is they often like, you know, lose sight of of other things. I once had this stove. It was like a Japanese stove someone give me to to try out and it had it was like horrendously it was like massively powerful like it would probably just melt your pan if you put it if you if you've got a pan on there and also it was apparently it was impossible for it to blow out and it didn't need priming i don't know how it how it did all these kind of things and but the problem was was the actual pipe that connected this the stove to the burner the it was you just you just screwed it on, and because of like the way burner it, burner sits and the bottle sits on the other side, it would often just like just unscrew itself just through, just through just using it. And what would happen is you like I once was using it in my kitchen, and I had luckily I had it on a on a tray on like a food tray, and suddenly like the the, the fuel was coming out of the bottle and it set on fire. So then the the bottle and the tray and the stove everything was all on fire. And my next door neighbour was like putting out the uh, putting out the washing because we live in like a terraced house, so they could just they were just putting out the washing. And they could see all these like flames coming, you know, through the window. And then I just like opened the door and like threw the threw the stove out. So so yeah, so on on paper that stove was like probably one of the best 
camping stoves ever made but it was just like it was like you know you just die if you were using that inside a tent or something you would just you would just die i think actually someone did not um when i did the troll went out to the troll wall uh Tormud had one of those stoves he was like sponsored by some company and they gave him one of those stoves and basically the same thing happened in the portal edge like the stove the stove was on fire so yeah, being a being a portal edge with a fire with a fire that, with a stove that's on fire is much worse than just being in a tent because you can't just jump out of stove. I can't, can't jump out of a portal edge and like run away. You're just kind of trapped in there. So it wasn't it wasn't good. I think he had like I think his hands got set on fire or something. He had like gloves on. He was okay. Um, tiered stoves. Before I go on, I'm going to break stoves down to three tiers as to help you better understand how to get what you want. Tier 1 is a summit stove. Tier 2 is an advanced base camp mountain stove. Tier 3, static camping or base camp stoves. So I'll start with a tier 3 stoves, a base camp stove. I've lived in several places which had either single, double or quad gas rings hooked up to a large gas bottle. 4 kilo to 50 kilo propane bottle. This could be a standalone iron stand burner um, that was just about indestructible or a tabletop kitchen burner like a cooker minus the oven so these are these are the kind of stoves you get in like middle east africa places like that like i don't know i'm sure people maybe maybe have gas but i don't think i don't think they actually have gas gas lines in a lot of these countries so you're not gonna be able to use electricity because like a lot of most countries they have a lot of um power cuts and things which we'll be having no doubt soon and so a lot of people don't you know they have they basically have lighting that works when there's no power so they'll have like lanterns and and candles and all that shit uh, paraffin lanterns and stuff and then they'll have uh, like a like a butane um, cooker and this is this is a similar kind of thing you, you you'll see it like all of all over the place um uh, this kind of stove is pretty much standard kitchen setup for the majority of people on the planet. Well, at least those who have progressed from wood or dung fires. I never, okay, here in Ireland, uh, a lot of people burn peat still, and you can pay. You can pay like some people have like like a, a part of the bog that belongs to them. Like it's been passed down through generations. Um, some communities have their own bit of bog, so you just be given a bit of bog. And uh, and you can also pay to have a bit of bog, and then you just go there. And basically, you you go up with a, and you just cut the bog, um, and you pile it up, uh, and you just pile it up, and then you sort of bring it home. You have to get a trailer, bring it home, and then you like let it dry out. And it's quite a, it's quite effect it's quite effective. It's like, you know, it's like a very cheap way of um of heating your house and stuff because uh, like Ireland was a pretty poor pretty poor place for a long for a long time. And uh, people used to people used to build houses out of it as well, out of the peat. They used to if they got evicted, um, oh, those nasty English people, they get they get evicted. They would uh, like build a house out of out of peat, which is kind of kind of interesting. So, in terms of utility and function, this kind of stove cannot be beaten. You can just turn on the rings with a match and easily turn the flame up and down to boil or simmer, with the gas lasting for months or years on end. Uh, they also work in power cuts. If you're a car camper, instead of taking along a jet boil or MSR, this is what you really want. So I don't know if you know if you if you understand what I'm talking about. You can buy 
these stoves. It, the, the classic one is probably it costs about like fifty to seventy quid, and it's like a big, um, it's like a big cast iron black thing with four legs, and it's got the burner in it, and you just have the the pipe that comes off it, and it goes to usually like one of those like four kilo, um, you know, like fuel bottles, which are you know like a big fuel bottle. Uh, like, you know, like steel, iron, whatever it is, like, you know, like those red, red, orange kind of things. And you just, and you just use that. It's what people use on like boats and stuff. If you see people like melting tar uh, for doing like roadworks, they've got a similar kind of thing. And uh, they're very good because they're, they're basically indestructible and they've got like a good, uh, you can actually fry an egg on it, you know, fried eggs and boil large amounts of water as well. So they're, so they're good. So instead of like, instead of using like a petrol stove, like a petrol stove is pretty good. But instead of using, like if you're going car, car camping and that kind of stuff, you don't want to be using uh, gas, you know, gas bottles because it's just exp- it's expensive what it is. You just save that for other, for other things. You're, you're best with the petrol stove and just use petrol from the petrol station um, or like one of these kind of big, big things. And it's probably good, like being... Um, being a, if you got your prepper head on, I think everyone it's probably well worth everyone having in their houses some way of like cooking that's not connected to electricity. <laughs> anyway, um, such a stove will allow you to vary the BTUs like any kitchen stove, ranging from four hundred for simmering to eight. 1,800 or even higher for specialist stoves, 2,500 BTU. Uh, like a, most stoves, you can you can adjust them. You know, as you know, you can like simmer or or get it quite hot. Um, the burners on such stoves, not camping stoves, are also designed to handle medium to large to extra large pans, having much broader flame patterns. Brackets they don't work well with little titanium. Come. Camping mugs. This allows you to cook large meals for many people far more easily than juggling big pans on small camping stoves. But this is kind of important if you're going car camping and say there's four of you or you've got like, there's two families, you know, there's like eight people, kids and all that kind of stuff. Is having that kind of stove is actually, you know, if you want to, if you want to put a, enough pasta on for eight people, you're going to really struggle. Uh, like with a normal camping stove, like if you, you know, whisper light that kind of like a, a, a jet boil you can basically cook for two people and it and you can't really cook you know you, unless you want to boil egg you basically can have can do stuff with water like you don't want to be like cooking beans and shite pasta might be all right but you basically don't want to put putting food in to a jet boil it just wants to be water but if you've got like a like a proper cooking stove for camping like you can you can get you can cook for for four people it's not too bad you know one pan with rice or something and one pan with something else in but beyond four it gets kind of tricky so the, the, these those kind of bigger stoves are good but you can get like the you know the the multi-burner stoves which either use gas or or fuel and they're, they're kind of good but um really for the price of those stoves you're kind of better just getting like one of these uh like industrial kind of stoves really um mm-mm-mm. Such stoves, uh, such stoves allow enough room to be boiling water on one ring while running a large wok or frying pan on the other, 
They all they're also dirt cheap because the customer base is skint. In brackets, that's why Arga cookers cost the same as a car. This means it's possible to run multiple burners at a low cost. In brackets, you can buy a single cast iron burner unit for about fifty fifty dollars or even cheaper. So these are they're the kind of things you probably get in a classic kind of base camp. If you like go on a trip and you employ someone to to bring up to come to base camp as a cook, that's probably the kind of stove they're going to. They're going to use really like one of these big, big things. Although this style of stove is not going to be carried in a pack, it's the ideal heavy, heavy duty base camp stove with its multi burner being perfect for both melting snow or large pans in large pans, 10 liters plus, but also maintaining a rolling boil or simmer. Although generally, you would transfer water into a large flask. So, if you're running a base camp kitchen, cooking and melting snow for dozens of people. This is the kind of stuff you'll you'll use, not a dozen jet boils, as this will really not, as you will really not have to think hard about either speed or fuel efficiency, as long as you're sensible. So the cla- the classic, you know, if you if you ever go into a hut, alpine hut, in you know this is kind of stuff like they'll have in in huts basically, and they usually have like a giant aluminium pan, like ten liters, you know, f- fifteen liters. Uh, where you just put keep putting snow in it and just running the flame and you know all that, all that kind of stuff. So you know it's classic. So anyway, t- a tier two stove in brackets ABC stove, so advanced base camp stove. So you see, there are some great things about tier three setups, but that's not the kind of trip you're going on. You're not going to take such a system on a plane in brackets, but rather buy or rent in country. Or carry it on your back, but rather get dropped off with it in brackets or carry it in a vehicle. Yes, you'll be camping and will be out in the wild for an extended period, so not survival alpine style cooking, but you need a portable option, and yet you still want to have some tier three functionality, such as be able to bring along a multi week month supply of food, cook with both small and large pans, and both um, cook complex and simple meals plus melt snow. When working through your options for such a trip, you should re- always nail redundancy first because a lower broken jet boil might force a sad retreat down a climb, a broken stove when it's the only one you have on a remote glacier far from rescue might be far more serious. In brackets, you'll end up having to burn your ropes to melt snow to survive until pickup. This means you will need a two stove system at a minimum for a two person team or one stove per two people, in brackets. So two or four-person team would have two stoves, while a six-person team would have three. Don't forget that having two stoves does not mean you don't need to look after them as you, as you would. In brackets, I know how I know how to do that. Meaning you need a repair kit, spares, at least one spare pump, and multiple fuel bottles. In brackets, if you... If you stand on your only fuel bottle with your crampons on, you've had it. Uh, it's, I, there was someone told me a story about some really famous Austrian speed climbing sort of guy, famous guy, who got dropped off at the back backside of Denali. He was going to do like a speed ascent of some route on Denali, the Cassin or whatever. And then a few like, few hours later, he, he like called them up and he said, "Oh, you have to, you come come you have to come and pick me up again." And basically, he didn't he didn't know his stove worked. So he must have never used like an MSR stove, which I guess that's what he would have had. 
He didn't know. He didn't know how to get it to work. So he didn't. He obviously didn't know how. To, he didn't know you had to prime it. I guess so he kept like switching it off, and just all the fuel would be coming out and stuff, which is uh kind of disturbing. But it's it's very important if you. It's very important to to learn how to um to it how to use a stove to if you got a, a like a petrol stove know how to prime it. You kind of need to know how dangerous petrol is. It's like it's very very dangerous. It's not. It's it's just dangerous. Like if you spill it, like it really doesn't. It just it, it, it lights it lights very easily if you got it. If you're spilling it anywhere, um, you know, got to be careful when you're f- filling your fuel bottles up and all that kind of stuff. You got. I guess you got to be careful with all these with all these things. Um, next is fuel. You do not want to use gas cartridges for a tier. You do not want to use gas cartridges for a tier one stove. Oh, I meant I meant to say tier two stove, due to both bulk and cost as well as steadiness. Meaning a liquid, meaning a liquid fuel, i either white gas or petrol is your best and only option. With all liquid stoves, you need a method of carrying gas that is one hundred percent leak proof and robust. Especially if you're going to abuse your containers physically or environmentally. Note that the plastic gets fragile in the cold and can shatter. Also remember that. Most fuel containers are designed to hold fuel on a shelf, not inside a pack or bulk. Pack or pulk. Now, a good a good demonstration of this is a friend of mine who was skiing to the to the North Pole, and he must have spent you know a hundred grand to to do this trip, and he was going solo. And I think on like day three, he just had, I think he just had his fuel in these like plastic big plastic containers that it came with from the shop. And what happened was uh, one of them just broke in the cold because it's very cold and the fuel went everywhere and it went and it contaminated all his food and it was like game over basically. So not, not good. Um, and I've done, I've done it myself with some, with like, you know, it's just, you have to be careful. As a side note, the British lost about 25% of all their fuel during the North African desert wars during World War Two due to using poor quality fuel containers made from tin which were poorly designed being only single use the problem was only partially remedied by adopting captured multi-use german jerry cans so jerry can is like jerry can is like an amazing bit of design things like it's a proper one has like three handles so it means that the middle handle is for carrying by one person and then the two outside handles for carrying by two people and it's got like it's got depressions on it so if if it gets really hot they will like pop out rather than the thing kind of, you know, like burst, bursting or whatever. And, you know, they're, they're designed to like stack up. And like the British, the British jerry cans, well, the British fuel cans are basically a little bit like a big square box, but they were just made out of tin. So they weren't very strong. So you couldn't, if you stack too many on top of each other, they would like, they would just crush the bottom ones. And so, yeah, so it's, it's good. It's a good thing to keep in mind if you're going on a trip and you're carrying. You know, if you're bringing a lot of fuel with you, because it's very easy for the fuel to get uh, ruined and stuff. Personally, I think it's best to bite the bullet and carry all fuel in MSR fuel bottles. In brackets, I own about 27, as this pretty much guarantees fuel security, but also removes the problem of filling bottles. If you're filling bottles, then make sure you take along a funnel, ideally one with a filter, as this will stop rust and cockroaches getting into your bottles. In brackets, also never place your fuel anywhere near your food. So if you if you're buying um, a generally, generally petrol, 
is probably better than it used to be if you're buying petrol. Um, but you do have to be careful. Like some places, you, you could be getting very poor quality petrol. Um, you know, they might have been sitting in a tank for a long time, or they might just see you coming along and say, I'll oh, we'll give this person this, some like, you know, it's got rust in it and crap in it. So uh, it's a good idea to like try and filter out your. Um, filter out your fuel if you're if you're in doubt like if you're getting bottles of you know white white gas or whatever and it's good it looks like good quality then you then you'll be fine um if fuel bottles are not an option then small or even large fuel containers for cars orange plastic five liter ones or 20 liter metal jerry cans work but not but but not that the more fuel but note that the more fuel you carry in a single container the more fuel you'll lose if something happens to it, i.e. stolen, falls over the lid off, gets contaminated, etc. So that's a good, that is kind of a good point. Um, the expedition de the expedition default these days is generally the MSR Whisperlite or XGK. I put the XGK2, but it's actually called the XGK something else now, stove. But my personal choice would be the Whisperlite due to it being much easier on the ears and has the ability to simmer in brackets, I would add in a simmer ring as well. Some people will say the XGK is a better expedition stove. But I've used the Whisperlite until it was stolen pretty much every day for about two years. From minus 50 to plus 50, sea level to 17,000 feet. And it never let me down once. Uh, note, a super cold, in super cold temperatures, you need to sleep with the fuel pumps to avoid fuel leaking out, which will also affect the XGK. So a few things there. So yeah, so there are other stoves. There's like primer stoves and other other stoves out there. I just think the 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 whisper light just seems to be like the stove a lot of people have. If you go to most climbing shops, if they sell stoves, they'll have usually have those of crappy sort of gas stoves, as blue it stoves and stuff. But the whisper light ones are very common everywhere in the world, and they're just very they're just a very methodical improved design over, over a long period they're kind of robust and they kind of work uh, generally i think the people who like struggle to get the stoves to work uh there's all sorts of reasons like this like even like this even if the stove is really dirty it'll generally it's generally going to work but it might be they've got the fuel is contaminated it's got water in it um uh like i've seen to seem to think that the if you somehow get water in it, like if you get snow in the bottle or or something, then um, that can kind of block up the block it block it up a little bit, maybe. Um, and most most of the problems, I'd say all the problems are go are going to happen with the pump because uh, the pump is you know it's that's got the most parts in it. It's things like the you might not be able to um, get enough. Um, uh pressure like if the little cup inside the thing is gets deformed or damaged or it freezes then you know you might not be able to get that to uh to get enough pressure but that's just a case of um lubricating it or having a right kind of cup you you also get like two different types you get like a a super cold extreme uh pump and you get like a standard pump and and what the inside the pump you've got lots of little rubber washers and gaskets and stuff and if you're at like minus 50 or something they'll a bit like the space shuttle you know the uh, blew up like they'll just stop working and what will happen is 
the fuel will start leaking out um, of the of the stove, which can cause like a fire if you're, you know, and it'll lose probably lose pressure as well. So that's why you it's a good idea to like um, so sort of have the have the pump with you inside your clothes, but only if it, only if it's super super cold, like if it's just minus twenty or whatever. It doesn't really I don't think it really matters, but it's like only if it's like mega 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 cold. Um, and yeah, and you always want to carry another one was a woman who was going to ski to the North Pole. And she said that even that she was just camping in the in before she was setting off and she said all her pumps broke. And I'm not quite sure if that's true or if she just like smashed them all. She didn't have to go. But that was, um, you know, it's good. Did they break? Have you ever broken a pump? Um, you're probably going to break a pump when you're trying to take take it to pieces and you've and you're not doing it right like you don't really understand how to take it to pieces so it's it's just one of these things the longer you have the whatever stove you got the longer you have it the more you'll just get you'll understand how much to prime it and how much to do all that kind of stuff like generally i tend i tend to if it's like a serious kind of trip where where weight's not really really a big problem i tend to take like methylated spirits and I use like methylated spirits to prime the stove because it's a lot cleaner. Like if you're in a snow hole and you're like, you you know, you get a lot of soot off when you're priming a stove. So it's just cleaner to have like a bottle of methylated spirits and just squirt a bit of that on it and um, and heat the, heat the stove up. So. So, um, so such a two stove system can be used to set up a great base camp kitchen when used in conjunction with a wooden cooking board and both stoves can be used together under a large pan if speed is crucial. This might be important in a large team. So that I do that basically means you just have two stoves underneath one pan. So you're like doubling the the speed. Um, like I I've got like a I've got, I've got like some quite big pans. I've also got like a big kettle, a big aluminium kettle that's kind of good, but it's just a funny shape. Like you won't you never you'd, you carry it in a pulk, but you won't carry it any anywhere else. But that's quite good. Um, if you're filling up flasks, if you've got a kettle, if you're filling up flasks or filling up, um, uh, f- you know, food sachets for uh, dehydrated food and stuff, but it's not very easy to put. It's not as easy to put snow into it because of the. It's like a kettle it hasn't got like a really huge lid at the top, so it's you know got to take your take your you know pros and cons. Um, when weight becomes a factor, you cannot you can take. One stove and have the advantage of not having to stress about cold or loss of pressure. Such a stove has also much improved both in pan stability and fuel efficiency, but most of all CO2 avoidance if you build a windshield pan support, think trans yourself. So basically what I'm saying there is if you're using like a petrol stove, um, they're generally a lot tougher than like a gas stove. Like if you get some sort of mountain marathon, super duper, you know, two gram titanium stove, gas stove that fits on a gas a gas canister, they're generally a lot, you know, not as not as robust. And my MSR XGK, um, some smart aleck um, in Alaska probably, or some somewhere where I was traveling through um, an airport. He they got it out. They must have got it out of my bag, and they basically hammered it flat with a hammer. Because basically, when I got it out, instead of being like an uh, XGK, 
it was just flat, a flat XGK. But the thing is, it still worked, even though it had been hammered. So so there's that, that thing that, was it the, the drop test? You know, can you get a stove and throw it 40 foot into the air and land on concrete and will it still work? So um, so that's kind of that's kind of important. And I think I've mentioned before, like I've, I built a, like a windshield that elevates, it's like made out of aluminium, so very thin aluminium. It's not, it's like thicker than, it's solid aluminium. It's not like, you know, like tinfoil aluminium like you get on a on a windshield, like an MSI windshield. And that's designed to elevate the pan. Uh, or you can you can either have it a normal windshield, so the pan is sitting on top of the stove, but you can also have it so the pan is like five centimeters above where it should be, and that 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 stops carbon monoxide like building up carbon dioxide, one of those carbon things. Um, as for pan size, all such stoves are limited by the size of the flame. And a very large pan, ten liters, will only work. Uh, when used with two stoves, make sure the setup is stable. Uh, and so I would not use a pan larger than 2.5 litres or 20 centimetres wide as you will begin to lose efficiency. So yeah, so you know, it's okay if you're in like a mountain hut and you've got this big burner and you can put a huge big pan on it. But generally for for standard, you know, standard cooking for like two people, you'd be better just using that two and a half litre pan and you know, doing two boils rather than having a five liter pan and trying to melt all the snow and, and make enough, you know, you know, for for just doing it, you know, just doing it once. One last point on is fuel consumption, of which there is a lot of conflicting advice. The amount you need to carry depends on many factors, including the obvious, assuming you're looking at milligrams per person, such as altitude, temperature, and brackets soon. Do you get your water from a tap or a stream or from snow or ice? And type of food you're cooking, in brackets, fresh or dried, pasta or brown rice. But you also need to ask if your consumption is casual or calculated, as it's easy to spend a rest day brewing up endless cups of tea and fried egg sandwiches and use a litre of gas, while on a route you get away with just a tenth of that. As a baseline for calculating summer use, I would go with 120 millilitres of white gas and 200 millilitres for a winter expedition um, if it's casual. So that's per person. Um, if it doesn't matter, and it doesn't matter, if it doesn't matter, uh, casual, it doesn't matter as you'll, oh, if it's casual, it doesn't matter as you'll no doubt be near a gas station. This 200 milliliter figure can be reduced by maybe 30% if you use a high quality windshield, heat exchanger, reflective stove board and employ a single boil strategy. In brackets, you only run the stove once a day and employ your flasks for drinking uh, breakfast drinks. Yeah, so that, that, I think that's like a Norwegian technique is you only put the stove on once. There's no like getting up at like the crack of dawn and trying to get your stove going in the coldest time of the day and trying to you know brew up and getting cold fingers you just in the evening you just do all your water for the next day uh, so you can put water in algae in bottles you put water in flasks and you use the water in the flask in the morning and uh, I generally I, tr- I generally genuinely try and have cold cereal um, because it's just e- it's just easier to have some cold to, co- to have cold cereal so that's what I tend to Tend to do because you're just saving, you're just saving fuel really, rather than like heating up the thing. As for as for snow melting, if you're using a ten liter 
pan filled with snow versus a two and a half litre pan, you may well find that the 10 litre pan is easier and less time consuming for you to monitor. Just keep adding in snow and allow it to melt. But in terms of fuel and time efficiency, carefully monitoring a 2.5 litre pan will be better. This will be doubly so if you also want to melt the snow and boil it. As I think it will be far faster to do this four times with a two and a half litre pan than once with a 10 litre pan because high volumes of water on medium BTU stoves will often reach some equilibrium where the water is cooling faster than it can heat up. In brackets, add a second stove and you might move this point. On the subject of melting snow, one of the most important points is to make sure that your snow melting water boiling pan should never be used for cooking. Doing so will introduce food particles that will contaminate your water and make it taste foul. This is most common when someone just fills a pan up with up to the top with snow and just sticks it on a high flame. What happens is the snow in contact with the base of the pan melts and then partly evaporates, leaving bare metal that superheats and burns any food particles, making the water undrinkable. Contaminated contaminates also include coffee, tea or sports drink. Separate out your cooking pans from your water pan. So I'm sure that I'm sure that kind of makes sense to anybody. Um, like it does, if you're like if you're just if you're just summer camping, you know it doesn't matter. You, you know you can you can cook pasta and then cook a cup of tea or do some beans and then cook a cup, cup of tea once you've cleaned it. But if you're uh, if you're on like a winter winter trip, you know every, you you know everything. You just it's just all it's all basically water based what you're doing so you just don't want to be like it's fat it's like really foul if you get water that gets burnt burnt water which which kind of which can happen so now onto the final tier tier one stoves summit stoves these will generally be a single stove unless you're concerned about having to bivy apart in brackets the weight of the burner on a jet boil stove is minimal if each climber is using the pan it's part of their personal mug pan. So that, that just means, you know, instead of having one jet boil, you just have like two jet boils. And, you know, you'd you'd probably have two gas canisters if you had one jet boil. So this just means, you know, you've you just, one person's got one canister, you've got the other canister. And, you know, you, you just have the, the stove part. And you're just going to replace, each person's got the pan and the burner. So it's a little bit heavier, but it, it, it's it kind of, you know, if you were if you wanted to, to, you know, hydrate quicker, that system would probably be a very good way of doing it because you, um, for a minimal extra bit of weight, you'd like double the time. It would, you know, half the time it would take to to melt snow and hydrate and stuff. Um, someone told me that when in the Marines, I don't know if same in like other. I guess it's the same in all sorts of armies, but everyone has a jet. Lots of people have a jet boil now in their in like a pouch and if someone says you know like like five minutes stop like you'll just hear all these jet boils firing up and everyone making up a tea and stuff so it's it's a good it's a it's a you know it'd be good if you're doing like a big snowy route instead of carrying you know loads trying to bring loads of water up there it's gonna it's gonna freeze and it'd be useless you know it's, it's it's quite good to do the uh it's quite good to hear my son outside the door panting around. It's quite good to, uh, could you know, to have like your one stove each because it's, you know, it's, it's it's good. If you ever, if you ever, if you're in like a survival situation, you know, having a stove is like is makes a huge makes a huge difference. Um, 
Uh, T1. God, I can hear my son. He's trying to get the door open. Like a little rat. He's like, go away. <laughs> it's good to be cruel to them. Oh, God. Noah! Oh, he knows I'm in here. I can hear me. I shouldn't have shouted. <laughs> you can let him in. <laughs> you can be on. You can be on the podcast. Oh, Christ Almighty! I'm in the middle of doing my podcast. You don't understand what I'm talking about, do you? God, yes. You need to grow up. You need to grow up, boy. God. <laughs> Ow! God, he's grabbing my balls. Stop. Christ almighty. This is not... You don't get... I'll do good. Come on, you. This is not professional. This is not professional. <laughs> Whatever. Anyway. <laughs> uh, what's the other bit? Uh, little, little, little. Uh, um... And can be a canister or liquid fuel, depending on the length and consequence of failure. In brackets, canister, a canister stove has a higher failure rate and most faults can it be fixed in the field. Yeah, if you've got a canister stove, the only thing you can basically take is a pricker for pricking the, the nozzle if it gets if it gets somehow some dirt gets in there, which does happen. Um, but, but apart from that, where a, where a petrol stove uh it's amazing how you can you can bring one back to life somehow um you know they're just the kind of i guess they're a bit like a i guess they're a little bit like a two-stroke engine or something like they're they're very very simple devices you know you just the fuel basically you have a thing that stops the fuel coming out you have a thing that pressurizes the bottle and then when you open the fuel um you know like it has to be heated to vaporize the fuel then it it's um, very good, but some yeah, you know, they were like the peak stoves were bloody terrible. Like they would they have a lot of problems with those, but you know the the, the newer ones. That's why next UK is kind of good because it's because it's very uh, it's even more simple. It's, it hasn't got a fuel line. It's just got like a metal fuel line. Oh no, it's it's got a fuel line now. It doesn't have a metal. It used to have a metal fuel line. So I don't know. I, I'm not sure when you would use that. Maybe if you were going to use like. Lots of like diesel and um, kerosene, paraffin and paraffin, diesel, kerosene. Anyway, all that other stuff. But um, generally, if you can get if you can get petrol, you, you know you can get petrol everywhere. Um, here it's important to focus on this one pan system um, and keep your pan. Uh, you will generally only have one, only for water. Adding this is the cup. Adding this into a cup. Uh, adding this into a cup of dehydrated food bags. Adding this into a cup. I don't know what that means. Um, oh, you can use. Oh, yes, yeah, so you're gonna. You're basically. You're just gonna have one pan when you're climbing. When you're actually climbing, and and you're just gonna use that for uh, melting water. And you're gonna put that into another cup, like your drinking cup or your food cup, or you're gonna put it into something else. And I've just said how. Those like the plastic containers, plastic wrap packets that you get dehydrated food in, they they actually make quite good um, bowls for eating out of. You just just take 
just clean one out and just carry it because you can you know carry that pretty well you, you roll it up so you haven't got like a big that's the problem with like cups they're kind of bulky so um like my my msr reactor stove i have uh i can fit inside it i have like a titanium cup um alp kit one that fits inside the stove then inside that goes a, a gsi plastic cup so the whole so it's quite good you've got all your cups and all your balls inside the uh inside the inside the stove so that's so that works really really well and i have it like in a bag as well i've uh, I sewed up a bag so the whole thing goes inside a bag because you don't want to be if you're on like a ledge or if you're on a big wall or something you don't want to be getting out your you know getting out your all your stove stuff and the lid falls off and you lose it and then the burner falls out you want everything to be inside one one container um a great story to illustrate this point was colin haley's solo of mount hunter being very thirsty and dehydrated with just a little gas left he stuffed his jet boil stove with snow and just cranked it up and waited for it to boil unbeknownst to colin the remnants of his last meal in the pan just turned to carbon creating a foul tasting and undrinkable slush meaning he was not only out of gas and water but also had a mouthful of foul poison in brackets this is typically the reality of doing a bear grills and drinking your own piss so yeah yeah i had a, I had a friend who uh he uh he took like a 70 meter fall on the grand Jurass and he broke his broke his ankle like shattered his ankle and he broke his hip broke, broke his pelvis and he was kind of left left on the mountain tied on tied onto the mountain while his he had three he was climbing with those three there's four of them and the other three people tried to climb to the summit to try and get a rescue for him. And he ended up being left there for maybe like three days or something, three nights. And he was absolutely like on his on his last legs and he was really dehydrated. And he had a he'd pissed because he was in his sleeping bag, like tied to this like tiny little tied to the side of the face. He uh he'd pissed into his Nalgene bottle and he decided he was gonna drink the piss. He was so thirsty, and when he drank the piss, it was like it was like sulfuric acid. And he said, like, you know, one minute he was in like the most pain he'd ever been in his life, and the next minute he was in like doubly doubly bad pain. So yeah, don't drink your piss unless you unless if you if you you know if you don't want to drink your piss, if you're not really if you're not really that bothered about drinking your piss, then drink you can drink your piss. But if you really really want to drink your piss, then probably don't drink your piss. Unless you saved your piss when you weren't really that bothered, you know, maybe that's a good thing, like, you know, just, you know, money in the bank kind of thing. So tier one strategy. Um, really, your question here is about using a tier one stove in a tier one style stove scenario. And most climbs, when you're using a tier one stove, you will only have a small pan, depending on the team size, and limited fuel. And so it's best to do the following. When melting snow, try and get set up. Try and get set up so everything is where you need it, as this will limit the chance of spilling all your hard-earned earned water. In a camp setting, this means having a bag for snow, an IKEA carry bag works, or a stuff sack, good for high camp. Plus, it's good to have something clean to scoop in the snow, like a mug or jug. <sighs> Many plastic cups and jugs will break in the cold. And so a Lexan-style cup and mug works best. So is that kind of obvious what I'm talking about? You just want something else to scoop the the snow in. This is this is mainly base camp stuff. It's not, not necessarily high up when you're climbing. 
It's best to avoid just scooping snow up, up around you as this can easily contain all sorts of nastiness as people move around. Um, so a good example of this was when we tried to do the Russian route on the north face of the Eiger, we ended up being, we had like a camp on the under a big overhang. And I think we were there for maybe three nights as we were like fixing, we're doing like kind of going capsule style. It means that you, you fix your ropes up and then you like haul everything up and then you fix your ropes up and you haul everything up. So it means you get like a really good camp. Like we had, a, like we had some amazing camps on that climb. We had like, we had a, we had one, it was like in a snow hall, like underneath the overhang. It was, it was, we had amazing camps, great camping holiday. Anyway, so, but one night, because we were like in the same place for a long time, you're just kind of reaching out of the front of the tent and like getting some snow and then melting it in the, in our, in our reactor. Then one day, like Neil Charlton, he's like eating his uh, dehydrated food. He's like, what's this? And he pulls out this massive toenail. And basically, I think it was my toenail. I think I'd like cut my toenail and like flicked it out the the door of the tent and it just landed in the snow and then I'd scooped it up. So, but that's not too serious. Like, but if you get, if you get someone having a shit and then walking, walking back in and they've got shit on the shoes and it ends up in the, in the snow, you know, you'll get like gastroenteritis or something. It could kill you. So, um, yes, it's good to, I think, you know, it's good to like, if you're getting snow, get, you know, make sure you like, if you're going to piss and shit, go on this side of the tent, you know, and get you and get all your snow from the other side of the tent. Like don't, you know, really kind of, these things are kind of important. And the longer you're away for, the, the more important they become. Try and always begin snow melting by priming the job with water. This can be done with the remains of your day's water ration. In brackets, not if you're using a sports drink. An alternative system that will not work for alpine climbing, but rather polar trips, is to employ a flask and always leave a little bit in the bottom to start snow melting. This priming water will avoid the possibility of the super of a super of a super pan of a pan heating up and burning, as well as generally making the job easier. I'm sure that's kind of self-explanatory, isn't it? So if you're using if you're using priming water or snow, I think it's best to start with a few centimeters of cold water that could be heated to the to the start of a boil, and then keep adding in the snow, which will constantly turn into water, and then cooling the hot water as it does so. So you don't you just you just want to keep adding the snow, so it's like opaque. You don't want to add it. You don't want to keep, you don't want to add it until it ends up being. Like like a big white lump of snow because this basically when you add snow to the water, the snow will like absorb the water, so you'll end up with like a big like wet snowball, and then they're all around it. The pan will get really really hot, so you just need to um, just keep adding it so it stays um, stays liquid. Um, so now, if you're trying to fill up your analogy bottles. When you get maybe 100%, 120% of the water needed um, boiling, if you want it to use it as a hot water bottle in the night, or cold if you want to save fuel, transfer it over to the bottle, leaving behind that 20%, which will then be the primer for the next batch of water. This approach will be much faster than trying to melt and heat two litres of water, emptying the pan and starting again. If you're adding boiling water to food bags again cook 120 percent of what you need add the water and then melt more water while the food is heating up and um, place it inside the clothes for extra heat 
and invest in a large plastic wee lock bag clip to avoid spills. So so a wee lock bag clip is do you know those like it's like a plastic clip that you can put on cereal or or whatever and it clicks on like that you can get like a long one which, which you can can put on a on a on a bag when um otherwise if you you know you gotta leave it five minutes to to cook and if you put that inside your sleeping bag or inside your coat invariably you're gonna like forget it's there like lean over and splodge it all over inside everything which is very messy um if you got a, if you're using a jug if you're using a jug for doing the uh doing the putting the snow in you can that can be kind of handy for for uh decant some water into it and then pour it into the into the into your into your bottle into your uh, f- food container um we just want to like it, it if you if you put the water the boiling water into that cup uh and the cup is cold you're going to lose some of the heat out of it so generally you want to like just kind of like warm the warm it up if you're really obsessive about this thing warm up the cup uh the jug before you before you pour the water in and then pour it straight into the into the into the thing and you can also like then you can also measure it so you know exactly how much water is going in so you don't want to put you don't want to put too much in you definitely don't want to put too little in you're always better but you're always best putting it too much in really number six is always faster to melt ice than snow and so if you're just about finished your stove duty Try and end up with a little bit of ice in the pan, as this will speed things up in the morning if you don't have any priming water. So it's it's, it's kind of very, it's all very bit obvious, really, isn't it? About how these how these things work, really. Um, wilderness factors. The most fuel efficient approach in a wilderness setting has to be weighed weighed against the number of factors, some environmental, some practical, maybe even cost. This includes altitude, temperature, weight, bulk allowance, access to fuels, safety, both CO2 and fire. A good quality gas stove with a brand new canister of gas at sea level on a summer's day will rapidly burn a bag of ice cubes into several cups of tea. And anyone testing such a stove for a trip to climb the Cassin Ridge will no doubt be assured their their ability to produce life-giving liquid to the team, both to hydrate both the hydrate bodies and food now once you get to fourteen thousand feet with a half full gas canister you're last with a te- with temperature below minus 20 your integ- integral spark are broken and all your light is wet you may find you're struggling to even produce cold water if you're lucky you might be experienced enough to be cooking in a warmer part of the day have a flint and steel and use a reactor or jet boil stove that is highly efficient and employing a heat exchanger to counteract the cold in brackets or simply putting your hands around the canister. So a heat exchanger, if you don't know what it is, you just put like something that goes through the flame and then and then goes back into onto the canister and like heats the heats the heats the thing up. An alternative to this summer an alternative to the summer sea level test will be running an MSR whisper light with a full fuel bottle of white gas. As above, you'd rapidly turn your ice cubes into tea. Saying that, this setup would no doubt lose points due to an MSR stove being a bit heavier and bulkier and more expensive, in brackets, due to having to deal with raw fuel, which is which is preheated, etc., rather than compressed gas, and dirty. Plus, it's not just a foolproof push-and-go option. It requires priming, and in brackets, it requires a certain level of skill to use safely and effectively. But, 
transfer that transfer that stove to 14,000 feet, half a bottle of fuel and cold temps. And how does it perform? Well, just the same as it did in your kitchen. The difference here, perhaps, while perched on a tiny ledge, is which stove, irrespective of efficiency, has the greatest ability, irrespective of speed or fuel efficiency. I know of people who've used a jet boil inside their sleeping bag, something you can't do with an XGK. Sure, the liquid stove might produce a pan of boiling water, but priming it while it's sat on your knees and balancing a pan on top requires a lot more skill than just firing up a reactor. So that I, I have you know I've I've had to do that where you you basically got your stove board and you and it's on your knee and you're trying to like get your fire your get your XGK type stove going, which is not easy. Like the the ability to use a lot of these a lot of the proper stoves as a hanging stove is a makes a massive difference if you're in, especially if you're in a tent. Like knocking over your pan in the tent is a is a disaster. But if you spill loads of water on your sleeping bags or whatever, so the ability to have a hanging stove, even you know with a reactor or thing, it just makes a makes a huge difference really. Um, especially if you've got like a bivy tent because they're they're not very big and uh, yeah, it makes a big difference. Also, if you if when you elevate your stove high up in the tent, like all the heat coming off the off the stove basically is trapped because the heat rises, it goes. In the top of the tent, and that creates a slightly better environment for the gas to work better. Um, so yeah. <laughs> um, a note on cold, on cold, hot, and boiling water: a unit of gas or petrol will produce ten times more cold water than boiling, and about five times as much hot water. A unit of gas will produce ten times more cold water than boiling, and about five times. Hmm. This is an important point when you're in a survival or fuel rationing scenario, as cold water is just, has just as many calories as boiling. When boiling water is the only acceptable end product, where boiling water is the only acceptable end product is when heating dried food. Although even here, you can soak dried food overnight in cold water in an emergency. You can also stuff the bag with snow and place it inside your clothing while on the move or in a sleeping bag. Um, Forging, forging hot drinks can be t- or foregoing hot drinks can be tough on your team morale, but if it's only for one night or two, it's far better than the alternative, which is a deep and debilitating thirst. In brackets, made all the worse by being surrounded by water. So yes, yeah, so that was that's the end of this. I think I, was, I should have done like a little bit of a a conclusion there. I think I think I was like writing this in bits and rewriting it and I didn't I forgot to do a conclusion um so there you go like I don't know if that if anyone has any uh any thoughts on that uh if it was like really really boring but it's a it's a very it's like a, it's a key uh a key topic if you're doing any kind of uh expedition expedition malarkey so um yeah so um uh yeah so re- re- again i should offer i should say again if anyone wants to do any uh just do a little review uh feedback on the itunes that'd be much appreciated i need to try and get my uh my itunes things up because you get a higher ranking you know these things matter a lot to me um and if you do 
just email me and I'll send you a copy of a PDF of my driven old sort of driven peg thing I, I wrote a long time ago. And uh, yeah, hopefully I'll get Pete on the podcast soon. So I think I'll be traveling. I'll be traveling on Friday over to the UK on the ferry. So I'll get I'll try I'll try and I'll try and interview Pete. Talk to Pete this week. Pete Pete when it was on the troll wall recently. So so he's made a little film about the troll wall. So we're going to talk about that. And also he's going to be on tour as well. So we'll talk about his tour kind of stuff. Uh, if anybody's going to come and see me uh, on tour in the UK, the all the details are on. If you look up like you look on my website, but also speakers from the edge and. Uh, although I don't do social media, it's uh, it'd be great if anybody wants to share any of the links uh, to to that to that tour to anybody who might come along. Like it's a tough it's a tough time for theatres, tough time for comedians and performing people. So um, there's a lot of apparently the there's a lot of people looking at looking at all the links for the tour, but there seems to be more hesitant about buying tickets. So I think people are always. Yeah, we need to get people out, out and about, back to, you know, back to, back to normality. Okay, uh, that's it. Uh, next time I'll, I'll yeah, until next time. Hopefully, I'm gonna go. And, I'm gonna go and chastise my son now, my wife, for like the humiliation of having him coming here, grabbing my balls as I'm, as I'm doing my, as I do my thing. And it's just at the right height for like pulling himself up by grabbing my balls. <coughs> so anyway, um, that's it. Until next time. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.